the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Luke. You know, sometimes we get this in our head that God can only use the most polished people. In fact, the most polished people are ones he often doesn't use because they're so full of themselves, there's no real place for God to use them. So he often will use the most unsuspecting, common people for his glory so that God can get the glory for it. And he selects 12 kind of no-name guys who are very common people of the day. And they, by being used by the Holy Spirit are going to change the world. Do you think you have what it takes to be used by Jesus? Most people would answer no. You may think you're not righteous enough or not educated enough. But guess what? Jesus has a different answer. Today, Pastor Gary will remind you that God's Son could have used anyone in the world to build the church. However, he chose 12 ordinary men, uneducated and unpolished from all kinds of backgrounds. They wouldn't have said they had what it takes, but Jesus picked them to change the world. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Luke chapter 6, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. All right, if you'll join me in the Gospel of Luke, if you'll take your Bibles now and let's, you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We left off at the end of verse 11. Uh, Jesus has uh, just instructed uh, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who took issue with him about how he spent his time on the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus rebukes them. Uh, the Pharisees and religious leaders of the day were more interested in being right than in doing the right thing. Uh, Jesus is strolling through grain fields with his disciples, plucking the, the heads of the grain, rubbing them in their hands to separate the wheat from the chaff, eating the kernels, and for that they get in trouble because to the Pharisees and religious leaders, the letter of the law would say that that's that's the same as harvesting and you're breaking, you're breaking the law. Jesus then goes into the synagogue. There's a man with a shriveled hand and uh, Jesus heals this guy on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees also look at that as work. You're performing a miracle. You shouldn't be working on the Sabbath. They rebuke Jesus for that as well. But he uh, reminds them, he says, what is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And Jesus also tells us in the Gospels that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was God's intention to give us a day of rest in a very busy world. And we need to enjoy that even more so now than even in Jesus' day because we're becoming more busy as the ages go on. But nevertheless, the bottom line is that there's never a bad day to do what is good and right. Never a wrong day or a bad day to do what is good and right. 
And after this scene in the synagogue, then we move into verse 12, and we we see here the choosing of the 12 apostles, the choosing of the 12 apostles. Now, what is the difference between apostles and disciples? Uh, Because the truth is that all the apostles were disciples, but not all the disciples were apostles. All the apostles were disciples, not all the disciples were apostles. Sometimes in the Bible, the word apostle and disciple, uh, those words are used interchangeably. Where Jesus had 12, and sometimes they're called the 12 disciples, sometimes they're called the 12 apostles. Well, the fact is that everybody who followed Jesus was a disciple. And you and I are disciples of Christ, if you're followers of Christ. It just basically means a student. We're students of Christ. We're followers of His. He's the teacher. He's the leader. He's Savior. We're learning. We're followers. We're disciples. But then there were 12 that were selected among his followers, among the disciples, 12 were selected, who were apostles. That's from a Greek word, apostello, which means to send out. They are the sent out ones. He's going to have a a group of 12, and then we also read throughout the Gospels that among the 12, he actually had a circle of three, of Peter, James, and John, who were kind of his inner circle. It wasn't that he was showing favoritism, but there were just some that 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 had more time with him than the others did, and those three were, are going to get entrusted in a greater way with a future ministry. Peter's going to be the first one to preach the message of evangelism. 3,000 people are going to get saved in the book of Acts. James and John are going to have significant roles uh, in, in, in uh, the early church, and so those three kind of the inner circle, but you have 12 in all who have been chosen here, and, and we're going to read the list of names, but these guys are going to get sent out into the real world. And from these 12, I mean, I suppose we can say minus Judas, from at least the 11, plus Paul's going to be added when he has a personal encounter with the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he has a dramatic conversion experience. But basically, from this initial group will come the church. The faithfulness of these 12 will end up becoming, ultimately, us. The outgrowth of the church will come from 12 faithful people. It's remarkable to think. And, and by the way, really, for all intents and purposes of a, of a definition of a martyr, when one who gives his or her life uh, in defense of the gospel, uh, all 12 really, to some degree or another, will, will be martyred. Fox's Book of Martyrs, by the way, a great book that details uh, not only uh, the apostles, but also the martyrs of the early church and reminds us that there were some people who literally laid down their lives in defense of the truth. These 12, I mean, you know, 11 will. Look at verse 12. It says, One of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Uh, Please note as we began this that Jesus spent an entire night praying. This was a significant decision that he had to make here. And I think to myself, You know, how long do I pray over significant decisions? Have I ever spent all night? I mean, I can probably think of one or two occasions when I may have really tarried most of the night in prayer. But, I mean, for for most of us, I mean, when's the last time you remember 
praying an entire night. But Jesus, knowing that this is an important, significant decision, is going to spend the entire night communing with God the Father here. And he selects these 12 uh, interesting guys, you know, for another day to do studies about each of them. Uh, Some of them we don't really know much about. Some of them are not mentioned anywhere else outside the list. He selects here two sets of brothers. Uh, James and John are brothers, and Peter and Andrew are brothers. He also selects uh, a couple of guys with diametrically opposed political views, which means it's okay today to have diametrically opposed political views because Jesus selected two. Simon the Zealot was anti-Rome, and the Zealots were known for brutally killing, going around murdering Romans, because they were so opposed to the Roman government, and they saw it as, as something righteous in defense of the Messianic kingdom, ultimately. So not that we have any record that Simon the Zealot himself killed anybody, but he belongs to this political sect, the Zealots, so he is anti-Rome. But also Jesus selects Matthew, who was a tax collector. He's pro-Rome. He's working for Rome. So within the 12, you have kind of an eclectic group. You have, you know, basically common people. You have men who are fishermen, tax collector. Uh, but these are common people. These particular guys aren't anybody special. You know, sometimes we get this in our head that God can only use the most polished people. In fact, the most polished people are ones he often doesn't use because they're so full of themselves. There's no real place for God to use them. So he often will use the most unsuspecting, common people for his glory so that God can get the glory for it. And he selects 12 kind of no-name guys who are very common people of the day. And they, by being used by the Holy Spirit, are going to change the world. So pretty marvelous what these 12 are going to do here. Well, verse 17 says that he went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Kind of an amazing scene to think. You know, here he's in Capernaum here and news has gotten out about just the incredible ministry that Jesus has and the power that is emanating from him and people coming as far as Tyre and Sidon. That's on the coast of what it today would be Lebanon. They're, they're coming a, a distance because people, a great number of people are coming to hear Jesus. Uh, this is probably the same scene here that Matthew describes back in chapters 5, 6, and 7, which we're about to read here, is Luke's equivalent to the Sermon on the Mount. Luke is going to give us much of what Matthew does, but Matthew gives us even more detail in chapters 5, 6, and 7. I like the way, though, that Luke here points out verse 17 then. It says, Jesus went down with them and stood in a level place. And There is a natural place in Capernaum, right on the Sea of Galilee, that would be a natural theater just by the contour of the land. There's a slope there, and it's kind of a natural, uh, the way that 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 the ground is sloped that would have been ideal for Jesus delivering this, this sermon. And sometimes the way that we commonly will hear a speaker like you're doing right now is I'm standing up so that you can see me better and you're sitting down. But Jesus in his style probably went down and was looking up and the people were all sitting on the slopes looking down at Jesus. 
and, and he is now standing at a level place. People are coming to him. They just want to even touch him. Evil spirits, demons are being cast out of people. And, and those who are sick are coming to be healed. And then verse, verse 20, Jesus then begins to, to speak here. And much of, of, well, in fact, all of the rest of chapter 6, if you have a red letter Bible, is all in red. Because the rest of chapter 6, all the words of Jesus, again, this is the equivalent of the Sermon on the Mount that Matthew gives us. And so Luke starts out here with some of the Beatitudes. Verse 20, looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor. And Matthew qualifies it. Matthew adds in spirit so that you know he's not just talking about a money issue here. It's a spiritual issue. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now. And again, Matthew adds, and thirst for righteousness. This isn't physical hunger. For you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they, ex- when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their fathers treated the prophets. And then he adds in verse 24, But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. Now the way that the Bible records the, the, the written word of the spoken word helps us to see here that there are two sections really. That Jesus addresses the verses 20 through 22, he talks about blessed are, are certain people. And then verses 24 to 26, he gives the woes. And so he, he honors some and he rebukes others. And it's not like Jesus is commending people who are poor and hungry and crying and that he's rebuking and, he, and, and he's opposed to wealthy, well-fed, comfortable people who like to laugh because that's the second section. You know, it seems like Jesus is just coming unglued here about people who are rich and comfortable, well-fed, hungry. You're laughing now, but one day you won't be laughing. It isn't that he's like commending people who, who are in one place naturally and another people who are in another place naturally. He's talking here about spiritually. He's not talking about people who are hungry physically, people who are poor physically, people who are wealthy monetarily, people who are laughing. You know, he is talking here about the spiritual condition of the soul, and he's commending the ones who see their spiritual poverty. He's commending the ones who realize, I am poor in spirit. I am hungry in my soul. There is something deeper that I long for and that I need. And it is an expression of the deepest longing of the human soul who are not laughing but weeping over the condition of sinfulness and brokenness. Jesus says, blessed are you when you see that about your own life. Because great is your reward in heaven. And he even then encourages them and says, and even when people insult you and persecute you and say all kind of evil against you, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And he encourages those who are in touch with their own spiritual poverty and their own poor condition. But he rebukes those. Not that he, he's not opposed to people who are monetarily well off and to people who are well fed and people who like to laugh. What he's saying, however, are people who don't see their own spiritual condition. They're just laughing like there's no problem in their heart. They think that they're well off 
spiritually. They have no problem. They have no deficiency. They have no hunger. They have no need for God. Those are the two people that he's contrasting here. And he says about the latter, woe to you. One day you're going to mourn and weep. If you don't cry now over your spiritual condition, you will cry later when judgment happens. Woe to you when men speak well of you. If everybody says everything wonderful about you, you're probably not doing everything well. There's probably something that is not, you're not doing well if everybody likes you. For that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. So he's contrasting those two spiritual conditions here. Grieve over your spiritual condition. Then you'll be blessed. If you think you're fine, it it will not go well with you. And then he adds here, and, and this gets into some of these very challenging instructions for Christians to be kind of taking the higher road related to things. So verse 27 He says, but I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Did you get those? Love, do good, bless, pray. He says in verse 29, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And now it's very challenging because what Jesus is saying is that Christians should be different from the way everybody else deals with their differences and disagreements. If you have an enemy, the world teaches get even. If you have an enemy, Jesus teaches get right. If you have somebody take something from you, the world teaches take it back and get something of theirs on the way. Jesus says if they take something from you, bless them with something else. Kill them with kindness. You show the love of Jesus and you do something that is upside down in an upside down world. And the way that Jesus views the world and views life is very challenging for us. But it is something as his followers that we have to also embrace. So if we're mistreated, we're supposed to love our enemies. We're supposed to do good to those who hate us. We're supposed to bless those who curse us. We're supposed to pray for those who mistreat you. Because he wants Christians to stop the cycle of injustice and injury. It's on us. We can perpetuate all this kind of strife and hatred, or we can put an end to it. In our relationships, where we work, in our home, we can put an end to injury and insult if we stop the cycle ourselves instead of of perpetuating it by getting even and revenge and all of this, you know, just hunger for, for, you know, I'm going to make things right. Well, Sometimes we just have to let God make things right. And we have to stop the cycle of bitterness and hatred and strife. It's destructive to us. And Christians should set the example and be above board and take the higher road in that regard. And and he he goes on in the same vein. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who, who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. And then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Now, I don't know if if you read that last part with me that I just read, and, and are thinking about others... You know, well, it says, Jesus said, because God is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. But you need to read that and think about yourself. 
Because what Jesus is saying here is, he's saying, listen, you, speaking to all of us, even today, as he was in the people of his day, you are wicked, you are ungrateful, and yet look what God has done for you. And look how God loves you. And look how God is merciful to you. So therefore, if you've received that freely, being as wicked as you are, why don't you treat your enemies the same way? Do to them the way that you have received yourself from God. But then he adds here, verse 37, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Now some of this, even people who aren't Christians love to quote, right? Don't judge me. The Bible says that. Don't judge me. Okay, well, first of all, there, you do have to judge. In fact, Jesus says in John 7, verse 24, stop judging by mere appearances and make right judgments. He's going to tell us a little bit further down here. You're going to have to judge, but there's a difference between being judgmental and judging people. Judging people in a wrong way is when you judge by mere appearances and you don't know all the facts. Being, that's being judgmental. But then there are some times that you need to be discerning, that you need to make a judgment call, not in a condemning way, but in, in a discerning way. And he's, and he's going to talk about this a little bit more. So before I get ahead of myself, let, let's just keep reading. But along these lines, don't judge in the sense, don't be judgmental, don't condemn, and forgive. And then he adds, verse 38, give, and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And so, you know, you put all that together, he's saying don't be judgmental, don't condemn, forgive others, and be generous. That's what he's saying there. And he also, it says, he also, verse 39, told them this parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And what he's saying here basically is we seem to be much more adept at judging the small things of others than we are at judging the big things in our own lives. Have you ever noticed that? A, a real sign, somebody told me this years ago, and I think it's been true in my life. A real sign of spiritual maturity is when you become more concerned about your own sin than you are about the sin of other people. We are so adept at judging the small little things in other people's lives, but we can't seem to, to come into reality concerning the big sins and offenses in our own lives. Now, here's the part where Jesus actually says you do have to exercise some judgment. He says it's not wrong to judge. He says, let's say you're, you got, there's a, a brother, who's in sin, he says, but, you know, look, for, look out for the big plank in your own eye. Otherwise, you're a hypocrite if you only point out your, your brother's or your sister's problem and not your own. But you have to exercise some amount of discernment and, and exercise some amount of judgment if you do see a brother or sister in sin. What Jesus is saying here is there is an order and then there's a practice. The order is first deal with your own sin before you go correcting somebody else. 
Otherwise, that's when you're a hypocrite. A hypocrite is from two Greek words, hupokrino. Hupo means under, krino means to judge. A hypocrite is someone who underjudges self and overjudges other people. The Gospel of Luke takes a unique look at the life of Christ from His birth to His ministry, His death and resurrection. Luke described Jesus as the Son of Man, one of his favorite ways to refer to himself. Jesus was God in human form, showing all of us what it means to live a completely sinless life. There was no fault to be found in him, yet Jesus was still nailed to a cross. But his death had purpose too. He stood in for you, taking the punishment your sin deserves. And then he rose from the grave, conquering death and the evil one. What an amazing Savior this Son of Man truly is. Are you interested in knowing more about Jesus, or would you like someone to pray with you? If so, please email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we invite you to come join us this Sunday for a time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship at Cornerstone Chapel. Find out service times and more information when you visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You'll also find previous messages from Pastor Gary and be able to download our mobile app. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. Got no place to go, but still you know